You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cole Kirby, and I have the the joy and the privilege of serving here at Sojourn Montrose as a church planting resident. It just means that I sit under Marshall and Reed's leadership uh, for the purpose of being trained and equipped and by God's grace qualified for the purpose of planting a new neighborhood church in a different part of Houston in the next couple of years. Um, and so part of that uh, means that I get to, to preach every now and then to, to grow in that. And so this morning we're going to be in the second of I believe 11 or 12 sermons in the, in the Galatians series. And last week, Marshall opened up with the first 10 verses of Galatians and established that there is just one gospel. Uh, and, and that it's a simple gospel that, that God in his infinite love, his infinite wisdom and grace has revealed himself to people by sending his son Jesus to live perfectly, die sacrificially, raise from the dead victoriously, that sinners might come to know him in grace and peace. And and so in a sentence, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And, And last week, Marshall spent his time talking about how there's nothing that we can add to that to make the news better or subtract to that subtract from that to make the news more palatable, but that if we change that in any way, that it ceases to be the good news of God. It it becomes something altogether different. And so this week, we're going to go into the next chunk of verses in chapter one, and we're going to see Paul moving from establishing that there's one gospel into showing how, through his testimony, God uses that gospel to bring about the work of salvation in his people. And and as we do that, we're going to talk about the the ways in which God's grace is established in the hearts of his people. And and for some of us, that's going to mean we're going to come face to face with certain doctrines about God that maybe historically have made us uncomfortable. And, and I want you to know that, that I've experienced that too. And we're going to come face to face with, face to face with certain things about God and the way that he works salvation that we might just not think are important. We might think these certain ways in which God brings about salvation in the hearts of his people, that they're not important. It just matters that, that he does it. It doesn't matter how he does it. That might be where some of you are sitting this morning. I I think that's where a lot of of us generally sit, is is I don't care about all of the deep theological truths about how God does specific things and his character. It doesn't matter. I just know that, that in Christ, he set me free through the gospel. And that's true. And that's available to anyone who would come to him, and that's true. But the the truth is that God has gracefully revealed to us the ways in which he does things. There are certain things that God has withheld from us in mystery, and and that's good. But the things that he has revealed to us in his scriptures, we would do well to listen and to learn. Because he's revealed revealed them to us with purpose. The purpose is that we would understand him more. 
that we would understand how to pray better. We would understand the context of our worship more. That we would be humbled for ministry more. The way in which God has revealed himself and the way in which he has saved us is important. But, but thinking about, about those in the room who maybe think that it's just not important that we know those things, it made me think about uh, being a middle school math student. And in middle school math, you begin to experience very entry-level stuff in the abstract things in math. Like, you begin to solve for X and, and, and learn some concepts of geometry that are a little more than basic arithmetic. And I remember being a middle school math student and my teachers trying to explain why the formula worked and how it worked, and, and I did not care. I just wanted to know the formula so that I could get an A on the test. I didn't think that it mattered. And then in high school, as I started doing more complex math, I realized, oh, those things actually really matter. The concepts of mathematics matter because it comes to a point when there are certain problems that the solution isn't so obvious, that you have to understand the broader implications of, of how certain concepts work in math in order to come to the solution, in order to know how to approach the problem. And it, it created in me in high school a deeper appreciation for math, a, a deeper love for problem solving, and, and a deeper respect for people who are much better at it than I was. And, and I think that's often how we approach the deeper things of God, is that at first we think they don't matter, and then maybe next we rebel against them because we don't like them. But my hope this morning is that we would see the way that God reveals his grace and that we would grow in love for God, that we would grow in humility and that we would be a people more shaped by his grace. Because all of these things are the ways in which God brings about revival in his people and in places and that's something that we've been praying for all year. So I'm going to pray for us now and then we'll jump into the text. Lord, you are, are worthy of all of our worship. You're worthy of all glory. And would you gracefully give us your spirit to help us understand this morning? Would you reveal to us the truth about you and who we are in light of that? Pray that you would soften our hearts to your word, that you would shape us by it, and that you would turn our hearts of humility and worship into lives of risk-taking, bold ministry for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to look at this text and we're not going to look at every specific verse, um, but know that in Galatians, what's going on is Paul is writing to a church in the midst of turmoil, a, a church that has had Jewish Christians coming in and, and preaching a distorted version of the gospel to the Gentile Christians in the congregation. And, and essentially what they're doing is they're, they're telling the, the Gentile Christians that really in order to be saved, you need to submit to some of these Jewish ordinances, some of these old covenant ways. You need to circumcise your male children. You need to observe these dietary restrictions. And so the whole letter of Galatians is Paul trying to reestablish unity within the church under the banner of the one true gospel that, that is simply that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and that he is completely sufficient 
for salvation. And so Paul begins in verses 11 and 12 and says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's first point in the text is that the gospel message is God's message. And so what you've been hearing that's distorted is a message created by men, but that is not God's news. And so for us, what we need to know is that no matter how we come into contact with the gospel, for the first time, maybe it is sitting in a pew on a Sunday and hearing it proclaimed by the preacher. Maybe it is over coffee with a friend who knows the Lord and has invited you to to see the grace of God and Jesus. Maybe you are reading a book or listening to a song or at a conference or a camp. And and what's important is that it it doesn't matter who proclaims that message to you. That the gospel message is God's news. And, And Paul establishes that because that has severe implications for the church that we know that the gospel message is God's gospel message. And then he goes on to explain that a little more, saying that that for him, he didn't hear the gospel taught to him, but it was received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is important for us, first, because Paul is is talking specifically about his conversion. And, And if we know the story of Paul, we know that what he says is true. In Acts, we can read about Paul, and Paul was persecuting the church. He was the chief enemy of the church. He oversaw the killing of Christians. One day, he's walking on a road to Damascus, and the Lord Jesus shows up to him in the body and calls him out of sin and death and destruction into life and ministry. And so it's true when Paul says that he wasn't taught the gospel, that it was received through a revelation of Jesus Christ, because in a very real and physical way, Paul experienced the revelation of Jesus Christ. But this is more broadly true for all Christians and that there is no amount of eloquent teaching of the gospel that will lead to someone believing it. But it has to happen through God revealing himself to someone through the person and work of Jesus. So this morning, if you are a believer and you've professed Jesus as Lord, it's not because someone convinced you to do that or that you convinced yourself. It's because God gracefully revealed himself to you. And that's really good news for us as Christians when we think about doing ministry. Because it means that we don't always have to speak perfectly or act perfectly in hopes that we would make the right appeal to someone so that they would come to faith. But we just have to provide opportunities for God to reveal himself. It doesn't mean if God reveals himself to people that that we're exempt from doing ministry. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Because we know throughout the New Testament that, that God has established that the primary way in which he will reveal himself to the world is through his people. But his people don't reveal to the world God. God reveals himself to the world through his people. And so that means we are released from the burden of feeling like we have to be perfect in order to show a completely accurate version of who God is. That doesn't mean that we can make distortions to the gospel, that we can change it or amend it in any way. 
but it does mean that ultimately God is responsible and powerful to change the hearts of people who we have no power to change. If we move on to verses 13 and 14, we'll see that Paul moves from talking about how he received the gospel in Revelation to talking about who he was before that happened. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So first Paul talks about his former life. And former life is a a very important term here because it expresses a a reality of what happens when Christ reveals himself to his people such that they come to know him, and that's that they're changed. That's that when we come into contact with the revealed person and work of Jesus Christ, our life will look different, and we will be able to look back upon it. He talks about his former life in Judaism. What we see in this is that Paul establishes that he is the foremost of all sinners. That's the the language that he uses in 1 Timothy, that he's the foremost of all sinners. He says that he sought to destroy the church. So Paul's former life was the life of a devout Pharisaic Jew. He was a, a Pharisee who sought to seek righteousness according to obeying all of the laws of the Old Testament. And he saw the church, the the Christian church that was growing, he saw it as probably the biggest enemy to Israel. Maybe even more than the Roman Empire, Paul was convinced that these Jews who began worshiping Jesus and talking about freedom and grace in Jesus were the biggest enemy to Israel. And so he spent all of his energy seeking to destroy them, destroying their message, overseeing their murders. Yet God has revealed himself to us, and he's revealed himself to Paul, which makes us know that the gospel is not only God's message, but it's God's message for sinners. The gospel is not just for any specific group of people or, or any group of people that might have a, a specific skill set that God would find valuable or an ethnic group that God would find superior or a socioeconomic class that God would find most delightful. The gospel is just for sinners. And if it wasn't, then Paul would have never experienced it because he was the chief enemy of the church. It's not... The gospel is not only authored by God, but the way in which it affects sinners is completely orchestrated by God. So not only are we not responsible for seeing people change their lives in radical belief, but we're, we're not responsible for deciding who should be exposed to the gospel or who has the highest likelihood of being saved by God's grace. In Paul's testimony, we see the most unlikely candidate probably in the entire first century to become a Christian saved by grace. 
And when I was reading this text, that convicted me a lot because I thought about all of the people in my life who, who I have not spent my time and energy investing in because I thought there's really no chance that they'll be changed. Their mind is really made up. They're really driven in their career path or they're really driven in this other worldview or, or they're experiencing success and happiness. So why would they ever feel a need for God? And I thought, man, that's, just, that's exactly who Paul was. And God revealed himself to Paul, meaning that, that the gospel is for sinners, even the most unlikely in our estimation to experience God's grace. We don't have the right or the duty to distinguish who we should share the gospel with and who we shouldn't waste our time on. Because the gospel is for all sinners. And and then we move into verses 15 and 16 and we see the way that that the gospel and God's grace affects sinners unto salvation. Paul writes, after talking about being zealous for the traditions of his fathers, being a devout Jew, he says in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is a a brief and beautiful explanation of how God does the work of salvation that is available through the gospel. And, And this is where many of us would say, I don't think this really matters, Cole. I don't, I don't think this is really important. I would say I'm convinced that it is. I'm convinced that it is, one, because God freely and clearly revealed it to us. And two, because it will change the way that we obey and the way that we worship. So, so salvation coming through Jesus is the fundamental belief of Christianity that cannot change. But we would be silly to not think that God's revealed way of saving us is important. Understanding how God saves us gives us a better understanding of the depths of his grace, of our dependence upon him, and our worship of him. Paul explains in these first two verses that that the ways in which salvation is wholly and completely the work of God. Salvation is the work of God alone. He says, when he who set me apart before I was born. Paul says that God set him apart before he was born. This is the portion of the text that will likely make most of us the most uncomfortable. When we started thinking about these concepts of God predestining his people or electing his people. But the revealed truth of Scripture is that for God's covenant people, He has had a plan to save them and to give them a purpose in His kingdom before they have ever done anything good or bad. Before they've done anything good or bad, God has had a plan to save and give His people purpose in His kingdom. This is true not only of Paul, when God, before Paul was born, chose Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But this is 
true of all who come to know God through Christ. And we often rebel, rebel against this concept of predestination because we are convinced that if God chooses who will be saved, then he isn't really a loving God. But much to the contrary, church. God loves us so much that he has chosen to call dead people who could do nothing to revive themselves to life. If God had left it up to the devices of people who chose sin and death, to come to him, then there would be exactly zero Christians in the history of the world. There would be zero people who would have placed their faith in Christ in the entire history of the world, but in God's desperate love for his people, in his majestic love for his people, he would look at even the greatest strategical enemy that he had in Paul and make him into a beloved son and apostle, even when all Paul deserved was wrath and condemnation. The truth is that, that nobody would come to Christ if God didn't do that work for them. And that work begins before we are even born. So God set Paul apart before he was born, and while Paul was in the midst of his great life of sinful opposition, to God and God's people, what happened? Paul writes after saying that he was set apart before he was born, that God called me by his grace. So the people of God are not only set apart before birth, but then while living lives of sin and opposition to God, he gracefully calls us into life and forgiveness that's granted through Jesus. This is the beautiful way in which the love of God is revealed to his people. That as, as God does the work of calling us out of lives that lead only to destruction, to death, and to wrath. And he transfers us into lives that last forever within the glorious love and grace and peace of his kingdom. And it, it might be easy to look at the, this example of Paul and, and think, well, if God set Paul apart before he was born to be the apostle to the Gentiles, then I'm sure when God looked upon Paul's life of opposition to the church, he only saved Paul out of begrudging obligation. But Paul writes that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. And for me, this is the, the most beautiful part of salvation, but it's also the hardest one for me to believe because I am incredibly hard on myself. But God didn't just save me because he chose to do so. He looked at me in the midst of my imperfections, my rebellion, my sin, and he found pleasure in revealing to me his beauty. The God of the universe takes pleasure in making himself known to undeserving sinners through his gospel truth. When all we deserve is wrath and separation from God, he could easily withhold the work of Christ that would save us. He could make us blind to the beauty of his forgiveness and reconciliation. He could prevent us from experiencing the grace and peace that is the result of belief in his son but he doesn't take pleasure in that. 
Quite the opposite, God is pleased to reveal himself to us and to save us. It has huge implications for us in the way that we experience the gospel because now we know that for those of us who tend to be hard on, hard on ourselves or, or feel like there is some standard of achievement that we have to live up to in order for us to love ourselves, in order for others to love us, or especially in order for God to love us. We, we know that when we fail, now that God looks upon us and he's pleased to reveal his grace to us. So Christian, if you struggle with guilt or self-esteem or uh, an an overbearing burden to be perfect. God's pleased to reveal his grace to you. He doesn't do it because he has to. In fact, he doesn't have to. But he's chosen to do that out of love, not out of obligation. This text tells me that God found pleasure in revealing himself to me precisely when I didn't deserve it. And has given me, as verse 3 tells us at the beginning of the chapter, grace and peace through Christ. I have the grace of God as he has extended to me the gift of forgiveness, eternal life, his Holy Spirit, the righteousness of the perfect one, Jesus. And I have peace with God as he has chosen to reveal himself to me, to turn me from being his enemy to being his son and his friend. So applying this doctrine in my life means that when I fail, I can remind myself that God does not demand my perfection. He's provided it for me. And that it's yet another opportunity for God to, with great pleasure, reveal his grace to me. God finds pleasure in his people finding rest in him. That is where God God, God finds pleasure in his people finding rest in him. So so God didn't save Paul or any other Christian without purpose. He set Paul apart before his birth in order, as Paul says, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So God's plan for Paul before Paul's birth was that he would be the apostle establishing the church of Jesus in the non-Jewish world. And if you're in Christ today, God has also always had a plan for you. That plan probably is not as specific as Paul's apostolic calling. But he did choose you, call you, and reveal himself to you for the purpose of serving in the work of his kingdom. Ephesians 2 is this beautiful chapter in which Paul explains the grace of God revealed in the gospel. And he says that we were dead in our sin and trespasses, but God made us alive, alive in Christ, which once again shows our inability to come to him on our own being dead, but him being graceful and calling us to life. And at the end of that, he says that we are saved in order to do the good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in. So before we were born, God prepared good works for us to do after he calls us to himself. And he's gracefully and marvelously called us out of death and into life, marked by doing those works. 
a life that is marked by doing the works that God has already prepared for us to do. So, so God has saved his people through a gospel message that is his gospel message, not the message of men. And, and the message is that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and God works that salvation all on his own beginning before we are born. By separating his people and preparing good works for them to walk in. In the perfection that he has given them in the righteousness of Christ. He looks upon his people in a helpless and sinful state and effectually calls them to himself by a grace that is irresistible. And in so doing, he reveals himself to them. And this, this is the work of God and it is the good pleasure of God to gracefully save his people. And if we skip ahead to verses 23 and 24, we will see that it's not only the work of God and, and the pleasure of God to save his people, but that it is also the glory of God. It says that they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So in God gracefully saving us, a story becomes attached to that event. And we often think of this as our story, but it's more than that because it's God's story. For Paul, the specific story was that he once sought to kill Christians, but then God called him and revealed himself, and then he became an apostle that preached the good news of Jesus rather than trying to kill people who did so. For me, it's that a young man who knew the good news of Jesus once tried to look elsewhere for joy and ended up proclaiming that there is only joy in Christ. And if you're in Christ this morning, God has a specific story attached to your life. But whatever it is, it will lead to God being glorified because stories of salvation are not personal stories about people, but they're gospel stories about God. Paul didn't save himself or, or just one day decide, I'm going to stop trying to destroy the church and I'm going to you know, be a leader in the church. God decided that for him and lovingly called him into a life through the revelation of Jesus. I didn't save myself or decide on my own that Christ was the ultimate treasure. I realized that as God called me out of sin and gracefully revealed the person and work of Jesus to me. God authors the gospel. He does all of the work of saving people through the gospel. He finds joy in doing this and saving sinners who are undeserving. And then even more, he receives glory through the stories of his grace being known as we as the church walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand for us to do. And so as we take these doctrines to heart, we'll realize that, that the grace of God is maybe even more powerful and magnificent than we once thought it was. This should lead us to be deeply humbled by the love and goodness and sovereignty of God, knowing that there is absolutely no way in which I can look at my story of coming to faith and saying, I did that. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. God has done it. God has 
had done it for Paul. He's done it for millions throughout the last 2,000 years, and he will continue to do that. It is the great pleasure of God to do that, to call people to himself. As I was thinking about this text and, and talking through it, I realized that, that this text is, is not just a historical text about the first century church, and it's not just a theological text about the nature of God, but it's literature steeped in revival. This concept that we've been going back to over and over and over again this year. And we've said that, that revival is the work of God in which the ordinary grace of God is made known in extraordinary measures. That's what we see in the life of Paul. The ordinary grace of God to save sinners is revealed in an extraordinary measure as the chief enemy of God's people is turned into the chief advocate of God's kingdom. The ordinary grace of God to establish his church is revealed in extraordinary measures as churches that are divided and hostile and have racial tensions in the first century are reconciled and united under the banner of God's grace. And we've said over and over and over again that, that we want to pray and seek revival in our congregation and in our city. And we will never do that if we think we have something to do with it. We will never see revival at Sojourn Montrose if we think that it, it means that we have to say all the right things, organize all the right gatherings, prepare the right systems, that our neighborhood parish leaders have to be trained exactly in the right way. But it will happen when we understand that that, that is the work of God alone and that's how we begin to pray for it. Not that we would reveal God's grace to people, but that God would reveal his grace to people through us. Not that we would be agents of reconciliation and unity, but that God would use us so that he can be an agent of reconciliation and unity. Paul talks about this, this doctrine of, of how we have come to know the Lord very clearly in Romans chapter 8. And, and the way that he finishes that, I think, is, is really helpful for us thinking about revival. He says in verse 29 of Romans 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he establishes the same doctrine of salvation that we just talked about in Galatians. And then he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give to us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? And then he says, who shall separate us from the love of God? With the obvious answer being nothing. And nobody. And that is the beginning of revival. 
when we understand that, that though we had nothing to offer God, though we did nothing to orient ourselves in such a way that he might save us, he's done it out of his good will and his good grace and his good pleasure. And now as a church, we have an opportunity to walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand, which is to simply proclaim and make known that unbelievable love and grace and peace and acceptance that we've found in the household of God to all that we encounter. Through lives of obedience, of boldness, of risk-taking ministry, of radical generosity, of sacrifice, of time and energy and resources, and pleading with God that he would reveal himself to me. So if you're a believer in the room this morning, I invite you to ask God to, to humble you in light of his grace for you and to give you a heart that would, that would say, if you're for me, God, who can be against me and I will give all that I have to serve you? If you're not a believer in the room this morning, I would invite you to consider and, and to plead with God that, that this grace that is in the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, applies to you and beg that he would reveal himself and that you would respond in faith. And moreover, let us pray that we, through this understanding of how God works about his grace, that we would see that grace in extraordinary measures in our church and in our city for the glory of God knowing that all the while Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. How confident should we be knowing that our Savior sits at the right hand of God all day long praying that we would remain faithful, praying that we would be obedient, praying that we would worship well and serve well. And so as we prepare to, the, come, to, the, prepare to come to the table, let that be a reminder that all that is necessary for us has been com provided completely by God in Christ. Down to the faith that we have in him, he has orchestrated that in our hearts. And that is really good news and should be a deep comfort to us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you worship and praise and glory and honor. We know that, that the scriptures say how inscrutable are your ways and how mysterious are your ways. And so we praise you and, and thank you that you've revealed to us even some of the way that you go about doing things for us. Pray that you would give us hearts to believe that with embrace and joy and humility and that you would shape us to be a people marked by the good works you've prepared for us and that you would receive a lot of glory in that over the next weeks and months and years and decades until the city of Houston has experienced your grace in extraordinary measure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.